And welcome to the news desk. We are here with myself, Jeff Greiner. Over there at the other end of the desk, we've got our other anchor, Sam Dillon. Hello. And our man on the street reporter, our rotating guest spot that is always filled by Randall Walker. Hey, hey. (laughs) Excellent. So we are, uh, as stated in the last episode, jokingly, uh, we're going to completely change up the format again. Uh, so, and it just seemed to work out this way because it's you know not a lot coming out during the holidays, and so we're gonna we're gonna hit some some general article things in quick summaries, and then spend most of our time looking at one topic. I think, and we'll see how that goes. We'll get as in depth with it as, as we want to get. So we're gonna look at some some big news sort of things, and then uh, Randall's gonna look at the latest Wandering Monster articles. Sam's gonna look at the Dragon's Eye View articles, and then we're all gonna look at the latest Legends and Lores. Does that sound like fun? Uh, barrel of laughs. Alrighty. The first thing <laughs> we're going to talk about is uh, the latest, well, I guess it's been a couple of weeks now anyway, uh, announcement that a bunch, a whole bunch of D&D novels have been dropped on Audible, um, which is mm. awesome. Um, I've been trying to tell people at Wizards for literally years. It's been probably four or five years I've been talking to people at Wizards about releasing more audio versions of books. They've got this huge backlog of novels. Um, I was actually suggesting they podcast some of them and give them away for free because you build audience and you build fans who might then go out and seek out the newer stuff. But I'll take a, an $8 or seven fifty novel uh, audiobook version of, of some of the older stuff as well because there's a bunch of stuff I, I would have time to listen to that I may not otherwise have time to consume. I'm thinking about – you know, I don't – I've talked about not reading a lot of D&D novels. I don't really have hardly any of them. But uh, the idea of downloading one on audio and listening to it in the car on the way to Gen Con this year or mm-hmm. other conventions would be pretty cool, I think. There you go. In fact, uh, our next book club book, for those of you that are also listening to the Tome Book Club, uh, is the Eye of Justice book by uh, Eric Scott DeBee, which is also available on Audible. So there's an Audible version of that, and I'm going to I'm going to read the book through Audible now uh, and see if it's a different experience and see how it differs from other people. Interesting. I've I've never listened to a fantasy novel on Audible on on audio. I've listened to. Uh, my wife and I like to listen to a lot of uh, like mystery thrillers while we're driving around, and also I've listened to like uh, real crime, you know, true crime stuff, but never anything fantasy based. Uh, it might be interesting. Yeah, I've done it a few times. Uh, either free podcast novels, um, and you know, our tradition ever since we moved out to North Carolina, all of, all of our families nineteen hours away. Whenever we can go mm-hmm. back, we we go to the library and get like uh, one of the Harry Potter books on on CD. So we're slowly working our way through the Harry Potter books on CD that way. Um, hmm, interesting. I've, I've never had a problem with it. I, I enjoy the audio format. Um, you know, obviously, I'm a podcaster yeah. and a podcast listener. It's just another way of doing yeah. sort of the same thing. Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah. I, we we greatly enjoy the true crime stuff. I've just I'm wondering how well it's going to translate to fantasy. Mm-hmm. Probably just fine, but um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was on Facebook or Twitter. I caught Bruce Cordell talking a little bit about it after it came out because he was listening to one of his own books on Audible. Mm-hmm. And, and commenting on how the reader sort of interpreted that sentence a different way than he than he interpreted it when he wrote it, wrote it you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, wow, that gives it a kind of a different spin. Oh, you know, oh, well, it still works, you know? <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, and they also announced uh, then later on that uh, the latest Salvatore book, uh, Gontelgrim, uh, will be available on Audible shortly as well. So there's not, ev- there's not everything on there. 
Um, but a lot of things, and I get the impression that it's going to grow. And hopefully, I assume as if it's more, if it, the more successful it is, the faster it will grow. Cool. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's there. And, and I've sort of um, toyed with the whole idea of a membership. I'm like, well, well then that is a lot, right? If you get a membership, you pay eight bucks mm-hmm. or, or t- 15 bucks a month or whatever, and you get a free book every month. Um, mm-hmm. The other big news is dndclassics.com. The, the <laughs> moment we've all been waiting for. People have been begging and begging and begging for years. Why, why, why won't you let us buy legal PDF copies so that we don't have to pirate these things? And if you'd made them available, we could at least get them that way and blah, 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 blah. And we've heard it all before because several years ago, Watsy pulled all of their PDFs off of uh, RPG Now and, and Drive Through RPG. Uh, and people have been begging for an opportunity to, to buy them ever since. And now they are available again on dndclassics.com. Uh, and a little bit ironically, powered by Drive Through RPG and RPG Now. <laughs> so yep. all the pl- all the places that they pulled them from are now pretty much exactly where they went back to, which I think is awesome because I think that um, you know the whole idea of digital pirating. It's been proven over and over again. If you uh, give people the opportunity to pay for something, they will pay for it, or at least and, the, or at least enough of them will that it's profitable. Right, and. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is great. Yeah, when you when a company deliberately pulls all of its material, you're asking for it to get pirated. You're asking for that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this way, you know, sure, will pirating still go on? Yeah, you bet it will. Someone will always do that. Mm-hmm. But given the opportunity, I think most people want to be are are good people, and they want to say, look, you know, I think they deserve some money for the product that I want to have, mm-hmm. and they'll go and pay for it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And and honestly, um, I think the prices could be better. A little, yeah. Um, I think you're right. But given the opportunity to purchase something that might be helpful to me is an awesome opportunity. You know, I'm I'm currently getting ready to to convert the Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil to D and D next. And at one point, when I saw this come out, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll run the original Temple of Elemental Evil because it's available. Uh, and since I'm going to run mm-hmm. it, it's worth ten bucks to do that. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you're planning on running something, it's available, uh, and we have an affiliate link. So if people, if you're going going to be doing your shopping for D and D PDFs from first, second, third, or fourth edition over at dndclassics.com, uh, swing by the tomeshow.com and click on our link, and then we get like five percent or something um, to help support the show, helps us pay our bills. Cool, cool. Sadly, I did not do that when I bought mine because I didn't realize it. Well, it took, it, took, it took me a couple days to get the affiliate link set up. The next time I go to buy one, I will do that. Has anybody um, bought anything through there yet? I mean, obviously, Randall, you just said you did. Yes, I have. What did you get? I can tell you that the experience was flawless for me. Quick, easy downloads. The PDF qualities are amazing. Um, you know, and I'm not a huge judge of that, but based on some of the older material that I've seen, um, back when they did have them originally on there, the PDFs have improved considerably, and um, it's sharp. It looks just like it did back in the day, <laughs> looking at it in your hands, mm-hmm. and it's I'm impressed with that. So, right on. And, they, and awesome. I'm, I'm noticing that they're bundling some products too. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can get yeah, the yeah, like you can bundle the used the underwater series U one through three. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep, they've got G- I, GD and Q. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. All bundled, all, all yeah. bundled, all bundled yeah. together for like eighteen bucks for the for yeah. the whole batch. 
Yeah, that's There's, against the giants and uh, and uh, descent into the, the depths of the earth, and then the, the Vault of the queen Drow of, and Queen of the Demon. Yeah, Vault yeah. of the Drow. Yeah, and Queen of the Demon. Pit, oh yeah. no, no, no! Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Q one is Queen of the Demon. Of the Demon yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, very good series. Oh yeah, very excellent series. And there's some missing titles, but you know that's they're still rolling things out. So you'll probably yeah. see the A series in the future. You're, I'm sure you'll see the S series coming right. out. Um, it's coming in waves, right? So, but right, you know, exactly. you that's also realize they're reprinting the A series right. as a bundled print product, right? And same with the S series, right. yes, as a so bundled print. I, I, so they might they might bundle they might uh, do the print product and then also release the PDFs. And I was wondering if they so. wouldn't hold off on the PDFs to encourage print sales, right? Uh, yeah, and then put them, and then put them out later, or put them out at the same time, and you know, for for similar right. similar pricing that which is what they did before, um, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so e- either way, they've got some sort of strategy there, and they've yeah. they've said from the beginning when this thing you know, at Gen Con last year, I talked to somebody from the brand team about this very thing, and they they promised that they're going to continue putting it out sort of in in bundles. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll put up big batches at a time, and each time we put out a batch, there'll be stuff from every edition. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so eventually, your favorite product that you're looking for will be on there. I actually was doing a search because I'm ho- I was hoping to find the original um, Castle Ravenloft adventure because I mentioned mm-hmm. that I, that I have that one and I, I've traditionally run it um, every single year at Halloween time, and mm-hmm. I hadn't done it for years. And then I pulled it out again to see to get some inspiration for my Halloween game and noticed that I in, somewhere in a move along the years uh, we I lost the cover. And not, and not yeah. only is that devastating because I don't have the cover, but the cover was intended to be removed because it was also all the maps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, well, it's, hopefully it's soon be cool. I think that there's going to be a lot of – I think they're going to follow – I think the Paizo model is to when they release a hardcover book, release a PDF as well, right? So um, you know, if they follow that model, I think it's going to be really successful for them. I don't, so. I don't know that I expect them to follow that model. Um, I mean, it's called D and D classics. It's not called D and D. No, I don't PDF mean that. I'm sorry. You were talking about the bundled stuff. And I, oh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as the, the new, uh, um, reprints. Yeah. And new material that comes out. Maybe. Yeah. yeah I don't, so. I don't think they'll have, uh, the D when D and D next comes out, I don't know that it'll necessarily fit here. Um, Oh yeah, that's probably true. Uh, yeah. Because right. if they do, then it's a weird name. You know, as the, if if they're supporting the current edition's PDFs through the same store, mm-hmm. then then it, why is it called D and D Classics? Oh yeah, it's sort of the, the, <laughs> the the implication is that they're doing older stuff there, older editions. But they did some fourth edition stuff too, because um, uh, Keep on the Shadowfell yeah, is on there, and yeah, but. True, so yeah. those are those are classic products. Those are not the, so classic. It, it, to to that definition would then include everything that is not in the current edition. Right, and there so is and there is no there is no current would edition be classic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no there hasn't been a fourth edition product in what a year. Well, the last one was whatever was was Menzo Baranzen, right? And, and I would yeah. argue that that was not a fourth edition yeah. product. I mean, it had the fourth edition look, but it it mm-hmm. had no mechanics in it. But it had the fourth edition branding. So, whereas like the Ed, um, what is it, the Elminster's yeah. Forgotten Realms does not have fourth edition branding. Correct. Yeah, that's true. So I would I I would say that is the first non truly non fourth edition system neutral product. Okay. Post fourth edition, whereas Menzo Baranza then had fourth edition branding on it. So, even I, though it didn't have a lot of uh, rules material, I would say or any rules yeah. material, but I, I would say that it's still a fourth edition product. I'll buy that. I'll buy it. All right, let's move on. Randall is going to tell us about the latest Wandering Monster articles. Yes. 
Um, so I was reading the Wondering Monster articles, and they've been a couple of them, and that are recently, and they have been all about dragons. They were in two parts. One was about uh, uh, metallic dragons, the good guys for the most part, and then there was an article on the chromatic dragons, which are the uh, you know rainbow colored dragons, if you will, and those are of course the bad guys. And um, basically, the articles were pretty much their vision of how they're seeing these dragons at this point, and how they're shaping up for um, D D next, and kind of what they what's assumed about the certain the different dragon types. And as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and they give a little poll at the end of each one. It's like, you know, do you like these dragons? Do you not like them? Are they, you know, it's just what you imagine when you think about D&D dragons. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I like the old school stuff as far as dragons go. And so for me, the way they've depicted them is not out of character at all with how I've always seen the actual dragons in Dungeons and Dragons. Well, and, um, and I don't feel like dragons thematically have really changed that much with a few exceptions throughout the distance. Yeah, I mean, I think 3, 5, and, and 4 added a lot of extras to dragons. Um, I'm not sure if that's always been... I think there was this tendency... Trying to back up a little bit. I think there was this tendency to try to make... Because the dragon is in the name of the game. To try to make it this big, giant thing that's far more you know iconic than what it maybe needs to be. I don't know if a dragon has to be the most powerful creature in the game. Um, sure, it's a, a very key part of... you know It's a part of the title, so you want dragons to be important. But because they come in different age ranges and, and if you will, skill levels, <laughs> it, you know, and how difficult they are to kill because of different ages and stuff, I think that you know dragons can fit in, an, in all kinds of niches within the game. Um, and I think that the article's really did a good job in showing, you know, here is what the black dragon, here's what it's generally looked like, this is its normal behavior, this is kind of the area where it lives, and all of that is very consistent um, historically from the way dragons are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So, and that was basically the gist of the articles. It wasn't a whole lot of, you know, complication there, but just, you know, talked about each of the different types of, of the dragons. There was one little side thing with dragon turtles, <laughs> I'm an I'm older school guy. Dragon turtles are not dragons, guys. Nope. They look like dragons a little bit. <laughs> they breathe steam. Okay, whatever. They're not dragons. They're not dragon so let's dragons. Let's not think they're that. Yeah, just they're not dragons. It's like dragons as well. Dragons are part lion, <laughs> not a dragon, guys. They're they're part dragons lion. in the same sense that that the the Komodo dragon is a dragon, right? Oh, they're the same sense that they're a dragon as a dragon turtle is. Right. No. Exactly. Just got a, or you know, or even worse, a chimera. Chimera is only a third dragon. Right. So <laughs> let's, you know, but the main dragons—they're all represented, and they, you know, I'm not sure they put shadow dragons in the into the group with the metallic dragons. Because, um, yeah, I've always liked them as a separate sort of thing. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't think I'd ever put shadow dragons in my game. I've used shadow dragons. I just don't make them part of the chromatic. Because in my mind, if you make them part of the chromatic, then it messes. Because the the color scheme always matched up with the alignment scheme. Uh, shadow dragon doesn't fit into that as sort of that core group. I always liked it as sort of an outsider separate group. Uh, and if you make it part of the core group, then in my mind, now Tiamat needs another head. 
Right, exactly. Well, it, it, it even says that uh, well, yeah, in the yeah, article just... that shadow dragons are neither metallic nor chromatic. So so it's actually lumping them in, but then it actually says... It separates them out. ...that they're not. I see. Yeah. You know. So I've got a few questions. Well, first of all, uh, I, don't sure. know th- I don't know that I disagree with you or that I agree, completely agree with you that dragons historically have been simpler than third and fourth edition. Um, Cause I remember playing or running several uh, second edition dragons who had like three different spell lists. You know, it was just, instead of having a bunch of powers, they had, you know, wizard spells plus cleric spells plus psionic sometimes and all these other things. They certainly weren't simple to run. They cer- certainly weren't simple creatures. Yeah. I hated that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I agree with you. I, right, but I mean, the first you, edition dragons were really the simplest. Right, but, yeah. But as you point out, it's also nice, you know, because of the age level, different, you know, different ages, you can have different levels of complexity of your dragons. Right. You know, uh, and that brings me to my 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 question: uh, Great worms. We didn't have them in fourth edition. Are they coming back? Well, in you know, in my time, you know, in my when the game when I was a highlight in the game, I mean, back when I was first learning it and stuff there they only went up to ancient so you know there wasn't anything beyond ancient there were eight categories of dragons and it was very young 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 adult adult old venerable oh, i'm missing one and then ancient but I, I, i'm missing one in there but uh sub-adult i think was one yeah so that was that was tough enough to get used to but that doesn't answer my question are they bringing back the great worm I don't know. All right, my second. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I hope not, you know. I, I, what I'm hoping though is for a a fairly powerful beast, but th- they're brutes. As far as I'm concerned, dragons have always been brutes. They've got oh. a ton of hit points. They breathe like a bomb, you know, and they bomb everybody with their breath weapon. And then they have. And you try to get close. They have pretty nasty claw and bite attacks. I don't need a bunch of complications with my dragons. I don't need them to do ten thousand spells, you know. I don't need them to. I mean, now if you have like some of the metallic dragons and maybe even you know red dragons, if they're able to take a humanoid form, allow them to cast spells when in humanoid form, but not in dragon form. Well, your your vision of a dragon doesn't match any of the literature on dragons from D anD. d Well, not now. Hold on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because silver and gold dragons and bronze dragons mm-hmm. have always taken. Uh, I've often taken no, no, no. Shapes. Your your vision of them being uh, savage brutes—they've always been intelligent and conniving and manipulative uh, of different types. You know, some you know the white uh, dragon, the white dragons are bestial, but the blue dragons are very intelligent. I, I meant brutish in the fact of just bulky. I'm sorry. I, okay, I, that wasn't necessarily clear. I didn't mean in their behavior. Okay. I meant in the fact that they are, you know, they're big creatures, lots of hit points. I'm not saying that they're not intelligent or anything like that. Yes, they're very intelligent and they're. They want to get their way in most things. Um, I think they often, even the good dragons, are very self-motivated. Yep. <laughs> so you know, I no, so, I. So so here's here's uh, two sentences from basic D and D to describe dragons. Okay, mm-hmm. dragons are intelligent, and some of them can speak dragon and common tongues. And for example, gold dragons always talk and can use spells, and they can also change shape and appear in the form of a human or other animal. Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful creature, even back in basic D and D. Yeah, and um, they have always been able to change shape. But I think some of that, I think, has gotten lost al- along the way with the switches of editions and things like that. 
Um, and it's hard to adjudicate something like that, right? Mm-hmm. A normal size, medium size human uh, suddenly turns their head and, hey, there's a gold dragon in front of you. I mean, how does that, you know, that's that's a little hard to... Well, and I think that you have to, and, and I think splitting that is probably a good idea. In other words, you know, fine, it can cast spells as this, you know, 14th level spellcaster or whatever, but mm-hmm. only in human form. It changes gold dragon into gold dragon form, it loses that ability and becomes, you know, because to me, a dragon does not have the same kind of a dragon's impressed by what they are physically and what they can do with their breath weapon. Right. And I, and not, I, f- I feel like, I feel like a dragon who's, who's capable of pulling off those spells is also capable, is also probably just as good, if not better, not using those spells. Um, but I like the idea of that because they're intelligent and, and, you know, have a, a complex civilization and society and, and history, and they're so much older and, and you know, um, whatever, more powerful, um, you know, and have an innate magic built into them. It makes sense to me that they can cast spells and do so intelligently. I just think in a stat block, uh, you're maybe right that we don't need massive spell lists. We just need a handful of iconic powers mm-hmm. because that's all mm-hmm. they're probably ever going to need to do in a specific uh, encounter. But then... In in other sort of non-combat situations, as a DM, I can say, well, yeah, and of course he can cast this illusion or whatever that that may not come up in combat. And that may be the only yeah. way to compromise that. Otherwise, I mean, now as a DM myself, what I would probably do is create an NPC persona for a powerful dragon that was going to be in my campaign, and that would be humanoid, and he would have regular spell lists and things like that. But like I said, once you're in dragon form, you're going to do certain things. <laughs> and you know, casting spells isn't really necessarily one of those. Now, there is an exception to this. And, uh, and that's the... Um, and I hope they bring these back as well. But that's the Oriental Dragons. And that may not be mm-hmm. the term to use anymore. I don't know what you use. But the, you know, the, the Pan Lungs and the... Uh, uh, you know, the East, all the, the other dragons, ones. Yeah. The Eastern Dragons, yeah. right. And so, you know, those... Those actually have a tradition of being able to cast spells. You know, they're sinewy, they have a form that allows them to sort of manipulate things in such a way. They could actually be spell casters. Okay. The type, the type of Western dragons and the forms that you see, you don't really see that. In fact, the only exception there would be the gold dragons, and those have always been depicted in the past as having an Eastern appearance. Sure. Well, I was going to um, say, fact, because I don't know that I would even call D&D dragons Eastern or Western. They're just iconically D&D dragons that are separate from all the others. And the West, the Red Dragon is a pretty... Okay, sure. It's I mean, there's pretty def- much a Western There's dragon. definitely inspir- <laughs> inspirations here and there. I'm yeah. not going to doubt that. Mm-hmm. Now, here's, yeah. My, here's my second question. Metallic dragons. Yeah. Are they good? Because <laughs> um, fourth edition made metallic dragons not good. They made them neutral or whatever, so they could be enemies to fight. Yeah, see, I I disagree with that. I think I, they should I do be too. Good, but good my, or self interested. But but what but yeah. what but what do they come through in the article? Oh, I, they come in through they come through as good or self interested. Okay, I don't see them as foes to fight. Okay, unless there's well, let me put it this unless, way: unless anything can interest. be a foe to fight. Yeah, but yeah. I mean. I would not set them up as an encounter. In other words, you know, I right. if they may fight on the side of, and here's the thing about campaigns, <laughs> <laughs> because you can have a good dragon doing things that are at odds with the characters, but they're still acting for the good of whatever group they're representing. 
And I think some people forget about, you know, that there are complexities that you can put in a campaign that it's not, they're not necessarily evil, but it's like, you know, one country working against another. The country, it has its own interests in mind, but as far as they're concerned, they're working for the good of those people. And so the dragon might be working for the good of these people, but this other group, it doesn't like what they're doing, and so it thinks that they're evil and they're fighting against them. Well, if the players are working for that other country, then you know they're fighting against them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're evil in such from a morality standpoint. Right, so, right. right. But I, as far as those, you know, for everything that I've seen from those uh, articles, the the metallic dragons look like they're going to be painted in a good or at the very worst uh, self interested. Or trickster type of light, so and you can be both, especially when you're as sure. big and bad as a as a metallic dragon is. Right, All most right. of them I think want to be left alone. Sure, to be honest, yeah, most of the time, sure. All yeah. right, Sam, let's look at yes. uh, Shundahedi's uh, Dragon's Eye View. John Shundahedi is the the art director over at Wizards, and he does a, a regular column called Dragon's Eye View about the the artwork and what things are going to look like. Yeah, so um, in January he has posted. Uh, four or five different articles, um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say about two sentences about each article, and then I'm going to say uh, the overarching theme of what he's been writing this month. So the first article that he wrote was in early January, and it was about kobolds, and um, really the the quest the main question of that article was when we're developing uh, the next edition, do we embrace the past or do we create an all new creature? And one of the interesting things he did was he went through all the editions and he looked at kobolds in all the editions. <laughs> they've gone through significant changes. And so uh, because they've gone through such significant changes, what he does is he's asking which of these do we keep, which do we throw away, or do we just create an, uh, basically what's going to amount to a whole new creature? And, then, and so I won't tell you the answer uh, to what his answer to that is because I think you should read the article. It's pretty interesting. Um, and it has art in it course because now, he's the art director so he does it shows go, lots of pictures are they dogs or lizards <laughs> that's one of the questions he asks right because most editions they've been lizards yeah. are, are they are, are they dogs or lizards are they more rat-like because in second edition they were more rat-like and they had prehensile tails and they had mm-hmm. so he, he asks all these questions it's, it's actually it's not a very long article it, it but it brings up some interesting points and of course his writing style with all four of these articles i'm going to talk about is very um entertaining it's a very you know uh self-deprecating kind of well you know i'm i'm trying to figure out what's best and so help me out is it this or is it that and here's why i'm asking about this part and here's why i'm asking about that part it's very mm-hmm. easy read it's very entertaining um then the second article that was the following week and it was about uh celestials and so angels and devas and things mm-hmm. like that and uh he talks about those and um what he really focuses on in that particular article is the visual representation of a creature and how that informs what we think about about that creature. And so, you know, I'm, I started playing D&D a long, long time ago when the art was, for the time, I thought really, you know, I, I love the sort of old school art. But, you know, when you look through the editions and you see sort of how the art has come along and progressed with the different editions, you know, the art, the medium that that they make the art in and, and the different color palettes and all that stuff has changed and how they print books and how they do all that stuff has all changed. And that also, it, you know, it used to be 
I was mostly informed by my imagination when I was when I was imagining creatures and looking at different things. And you might get a couple of black and white line drawings, but that was it. And nowadays, you get these full-color depictions with huge landscapes and all that kind of stuff. And now this isn't all addressed in the article, but the point of the article is those – He's well aware as the director of art for the for Wizards that the art that they put into the product nowadays really impacts how the players think about and how the the DMs think about their game and the depiction of that creature maybe even much more so than in the past because things have gone through lots of iterations and because the art world has progressed and things like that. So that's also a really interesting um, article and he asks things that are particular to Davas and stuff, but really the overall question there is, you know, what aspects of visual representation of a creature affect how you play the game? No, I'm, I, notice, um, and, I notice as I'm looking, because I'm, I'm, the art ones, I like to look along as, as we talk about them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And see what artwork he's using. And I notice yeah. that the, as I, as I skim through that article, um, I'm noticing that they very much abandon the fourth edition version of the angel. And I, I and I don't disagree with that. I think there's a place for that. But that's mm-hmm. not the D and D angel that I know. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the reasons why he's writing this series of articles, right? And it sort of goes hand in hand with what James Wyatt is writing about monsters. You right. know, they're sort of, you know, they're coming out a couple weeks apart, and he's dis- you know he discusses kobolds, and James Wyatt had discussed kobolds, and then he discusses celestials, and James Wyatt had discussed angels, and you know, so it's um, the the articles really go hand in hand. So mm-hmm. you. It's a really good idea to read them, you know, pretty yeah. close to each other. But, but also, it's interesting to see the different perspectives. Yeah. Um, but I but want, you're right. I think the the, the fourth edition yeah. uh, angel has sort of gone by the wayside. That representation. Well, and, and, and I think there's a place for that angel, the for the fourth edition angel, <laughs> as something else. But it's sure. not. Yes, but it's not. Right. They're yeah. called divas. <laughs> yeah. And the diva <laughs> that we know in fourth edition should have never existed. <laughs> That's the, my opinion. Yeah, there's a place for that race oh. too. No, no, there's yeah. not. <laughs> no one um, ever talk. Everyone talks about kobolds. No one talks about the pig orcs. Oh, my orcs are always pig orcs. Yeah, the orcs. Yeah. Orcs used to look like pigs. Now I I, yeah. I go back and forth on this one, but they used to look like pigs, guys. I think you they can have pig. both. Yeah. I think you can have both. Yeah, they they are they are short snouted, uh, yellow to pinkish skinned, ugly little snotty creatures oh, I, with I, the, I still, with, with still, sow ears. I still go green. Yeah, all my orcs are green. Uh, green. When I think green, I think goblins. So anyway, <laughs> okay, let's get oh, we'll back get to the actual. Sam, all wound up here. Let's go ahead, Sam. Hey, this is what people listen to the show for. That's fine. Okay. Uh, the uh, so the next article was about um, the. T- I think the article title is color and texture or something like that. And here he actually, instead of uh, picking on or or discussing a particular creature or type of creature or class of creature, he actually talks about. You know, if you if you had to pick a, a specific color or a specific piece uh, of of a picture that really was the essence of D and D, what would it be? And not not something you know. Oh, if you think of that color, it seems like that would belong in D and D. But literally, if you had to pick the color that was the essence of D and D, or the picture that was the essence of D and D, and also what kind of typeface would it be? What would the lettering look like? Things like that. So he's really getting into, you know, there. I'm, I can imagine they're having a ton of discussions about what is the the, the next edition of D and D. What's the branding for that edition going to be like? And we want to make sure that it 
because we want to make such a modular game that encompasses all all comers, right? Everybody who wants to come and play D&D, whether it's old style, new style, in-between style, doesn't matter. They should all be welcomed by the entirety of the product. And that includes art and coloration and font and branding and everything. And that's really what he's talking about in this article. Um, and it's pretty interesting because he sort of talks about his job in a sort of indirect way. But really, when you think about it, he's the art director. You know what? If the product gets released and it's ugly, guess who hears about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or if it gets released and people don't think that it really looks like D&D should look, guess who gets, you know, the crap rolls downhill, right? That That's who it's going to roll into if something goes wrong with the art. And you can tell that he's really concerned about that, not in a he's stressed and worried, but in a he really wants to do it right. He wants to do his job very well. Mm-hmm. And once again, just like the other articles, this article is written with a, with a very easy-to-read manner and stuff like that. So it's not this extremely academic, high-order gobbledygook talk. It's really, hey, I'm just a guy sitting here talking to you about art. Um, and then the last article is called Covering the Past, and really what he's doing is is compare, he compares the covers of all the uh, players' handbooks for the editions of – for all the editions, um, advanced first edition through fourth edition. And uh, he really talks about the fact that um, – or he talks about what effects the cover can have on someone's perceived value of the game or – someone's you know perceived narrative of what that game is going to feel like when you play it or what you're going to really be thinking about when you play that game and sort of almost in the same way that he talked about in in the celestials article about the aspects of the visual representation of each creature impacts how we respond to it in the game well it's the same way with the book cover how does it look on the shelf how is it going to look on your shelf at home how's it look in the store is it going to evoke the appropriate you know thoughts and feelings that 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 are going to really feel like D&D. And so that brings me to the point of the main point of all four of these articles is that his job is to capture the essence of D&D in the art for the next edition. And in fact, he wrote an article last month in December. I think the last article he wrote before they went on their article hiatus was uh, it was on the 12th, and it, it was actually called Essence. And basically, that's exactly what he's doing is he's going piece by piece and he's writing articles and looking at things and and saying and and with a focus on in every article, if I make this change, does this still – is this still in keeping with the essence of what I think D&D is and what the fans think D&D is and with what everybody thinks D&D is because that's kind of the goal. And so that's my spiel. So which cover do you like the most? Me? Yeah. You can probably guess. (laughs) I don't know. I like first edition. You like the cover. first edition one? Yeah. I just have a hard time getting past that old style of art. See, See I love actually, that old. Oh, go ahead, Sam. Go ahead. I was going to say, my favorite, we were talking about this on Twitter the other day, my favorite D&D artist that I remember back in the day was Earl Otis. The, yeah, the drawings now compared mm-hmm. to some of the art that we see now are, were simple and even goofy sometimes, but I loved it because actually too much art is distracting for me. Mm-hmm. And and it does color your perception, I think, too much. And the simple line drawings were actually more inspirational for me because I could then fill in my own gaps. Um, when you take a look at the first Mind Flayer picture you ever saw, all you see is this mysterious octopus-headed thing. 
You don't see any kind of, you don't know anything about the far realm. You don't know anything about its lair. You don't know anything other than you know it lives underground. And, and you can fill in the gaps. You can decide what that's supposed to look like. And the same thing with the simple line drawings that were in the, in the Dungeon Master's Guide originally. There's a whole section in the back where it's like mostly encounter tables, I think, and stuff. And, and, and there's this little historical strip at the very bottom and as you turn the pages, it's like these adventurers as they're first starting out, and then as they get more powerful and they're fighting more and more powerful monsters, mm-hmm. all in this little strip at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I think those are Trampier drawings, I think. And, yeah, David, um, David A. Trampier. Rap- but those did so much. They were simple drawings, but they did so much to provoke the imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I just – I think they have to be very careful. I mean, me, I've been playing the game long enough that I can ignore art at this point if I have to. But, you know, a mix of this, going back to the simple black and white drawings with a few panels now and again would be wonderful, you know, for me. But, you know, I don't know if that's the trend, and that's probably, you know, not going to happen, but, you know. Well, mm-hmm. for me, the uh, the iconic D&D art is, uh, well, not, and I don't know that it's iconic, but it captures my vision of what D&D looks like. Uh, continues to be Wayne Reynolds. You know, his is the style that I tend to gravitate towards when I'm looking for an, a depiction of an adventure or or whatever it is. Um, you know, so Give for me the, an example. Well, he did the, the most of the fourth edition covers, or at least they were done in his in his style. But he was really known for being um, the third edition artist, the one who gave third edition its feel in terms of art. Uh, he oh, does. Okay. He does. He his is the style that dictates a lot of the uh, Pathfinder art as well. Okay. You know, that said, as I look at the the four covers, um, I think I I prefer the third edition look because I like the idea of my of my core D and D books looking like they're books that my characters would have in D and D. So you like the tome look then? I do. Oddly enough, the, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Name of the show not right, in, right, right. yeah. But if I looked at if I just look at the artwork on on the other three that actually have art, I mean the third edition one has kind of artwork, but it's a different type of artwork, right? Uh, if I look at that artwork, I, I I tend to prefer the fourth edition art, although I hate that specific image, mm-hmm. um, mostly because of the dragonborn looks weird. See, I'm I'm not a fan of Wayne Reynolds, um, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that as I think he's a bad artist because I think he's absolutely talented. It's mm-hmm. just not my favorite style, and um, I don't, you know, I'm also not a fan of of most of the Pathfinder <coughs> stuff uh, sure. that he has done either. And it's that sort of mix of western uh, westernized sort of fantasy, and then these really humongous weapons, and you know, the, this really sort of giant thick armor with the giant shoulder pads and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not my style. I understand why it's enticing to some people, and I I like it from an aesthetic point of I can see the good parts of it in terms of art. World of Warcraft, but I just don't. Yeah, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't float my boat, so to speak. And uh, you know, so but but I'm like kind of like Randall. You know, the art on the cover of D and D is not going to push me away or bring me toward it. I don't care what the art on the cover is because I've already I'm already familiar with the game and well, I already know. You know things about it, and so I, I sort of, I if I don't like the art, I can ignore it, but it's not going to push me away. Now, if it was a different game, an unknown game, though, it might sure. affect. You know, the art might affect how I deal with it, but, it, it but is, usually, it, I the art's not that important. And to it's me. not going to push me away or drive me towards it either. But I'm a geek, so it still matters to me. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, a, yeah. lot, a lot of what I like about Wayne Reynolds' art is not – and you're right. Sometimes I, I – I, like the style of big chunky art and weapons and things, I, I, mm-hmm. I would be fine with that if that was sometimes, but it, it is probably overly done. Um, what I do mm-hmm. like about it in almost everything he does is the attention to detail. You know, it's the little things and the little, you know, the accessories mm-hmm. and this, the fact that, you know, an adventurer is walking around carrying all these things and his adventures are actually carrying all those things and you can see them. Right. You know, um, right. so it's that, that attention to detail that I really appreciate um, in his. But again, in, in terms of covers, I like the third edition ones. If I had to sec- pick a second place, I'd probably go second edition. Um, that cover art is actually really good as well. I'm not a big mm-hmm. fan of the giant moose horns on, on his helmet, but. Maybe. Well, there's also there was a there was a different uh, there's a, you know there's there's basically two covers for first edition and two covers for second edition. He's only showing right one. He's showing, you know, they, showing they the had, originals. From they each. had the second. You know, he's showing the originals from each, and there was a second. You know, there was a reprinted cover uh, from each, which would be interesting to see if people because you know also at the same time there, he's he's asking questions about each. He asks questions about each cover, what you think about its marketing, its shelf presence, its narrative, and perceived value and essence. In other words, does it fail or succeed on, on the level of those particular topics? He asks that for each cover. I would be curious to see if people got both first edition covers and both second edition covers to vote on how, how that would compare to each other, you know. I never cared for the second edition covers because of they were too busy. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> there are all these swirling masses of stuff, and I, I just I didn't care for it. Now I liked the third edition covers because I agree with Jeff. I think the tome look there, you know, the the grimoire, if you will, mm-hmm. that, that had yeah. a nice that had a nice thing, had a nice aesthetic. I really liked that. And so, if you're not going to depict actual adventuring going on, then that you know that's definitely the way to go. Um, uh, I honestly, this sounds terrible, but I don't even remember the fourth edition covers. I can't even tell you what's on the fourth edition books. Okay. Um, I, I can't even the, remember. The fourth, fourth edition, the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide is a much, much better cover than the Player's Handbook, in yeah. my opinion. And it's, yeah. it's just that darn Dragonborn. That, dra- yeah, that the, Dragonborn the dragon. in the Player's Handbook is just yeah. so not what yeah. any other Dragonborn looks like anywhere else in the game. And then it's on the cover. Well, then to me, it's yeah. probably the Dragonborn itself. It's like... This isn't D and D for me, so it didn't. That's true too. It doesn't I, register. I would know? have preferred not yeah. Dragonborn on it, but I think it was them yeah. trying to to set it apart as this is a different version of D and D, and we're appealing to a different audience. Oh sure, and, you know, so yeah, yeah. I understand yeah. why they did it. I just don't agree with it. But right, mm-hmm. all right. Well, you remember how we were going to do all those things quickly, and then spend most of our time on the Legends of Lore articles. Well, we're we're now to about ten minutes for the Legends of Lore articles, right? <laughs> Which is fine. I think we've had really good conversations. So yeah, yeah that's okay. So what do you want to say about the, about the four part uh, goal? Uh, well, here, articles? here's here's what it, yeah. There's, they basically uh, the Legends of Lore articles for this month were basically saying in four parts. Um, in part one, it was the two goals of guiding principles i guess of dnd next are to create a version of dnd i'm quoting now one one create a version of dnd that embraces the enduring core elements of the game and two create a set of rules that allows a smooth transition from simple game to complex one uh, and then he sort of explains what those each mean in the first one uh, but i think they're fairly self-explanatory honestly um it's the the next three where he gets into those details so you know 
part two is here's the basic rules. Part three is here's the, the standard rules. And part four is here's the complex rules. Um, and, and the basic rules come off as really basic, like to the point that you don't um, even necessarily, uh, depending on how they go with it. They, they've, they've looked at two different ways, but there's one version that they've considered where you don't even roll stats. You pick your class, and then that means this is your array of stats, and then you pick your race, and then that means this is how your stats are modified. Um, but I don't like I don't I don't like that idea. Uh, but uh, well, th- and that's one of the ideas that they've le- they've talked about, and it looks like they're probably leaning more towards the idea of just rolling your stats and, and keeping them straightforward that way. But it, it takes away a lot of choice. You know, your wizard is going to have these spells. Your cleric is going to do these things. There's no, there's no choice because it's the basic game. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea is that this is the way you introduce new players to the game. This is the game that, that parents play with their kids. Um, this is, uh, and they're talking about it, you know, fitting into a book, you know, that's that's roughly the size of like the Temple of Elemental Evil. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, a relatively thin sort of paperback goes levels one through ten, um, that kind of thing. No, don't worry about feats. Don't worry about skills. Even uh, skills are not there. Um, that's not the part I don't like. I, I'm fine with all that as as the premise of the basic game, but. I really think that if they're really so worried about keeping the essence of D&D, then that basic game needs to have at least an option of rolling your stats. No, no, I, I think that's the way they decided yeah. to go. But they talked about they, – yeah. they've looked at two different options, and it sounds like they're leaning towards you know roll your stats. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my thing is it better be a different product because if you put both of those options side by side, nobody is choosing basic. Mm, I wouldn't go that far. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basic, no that, one. That, that, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah book, clearly, anytime you say no but, one, you're wrong. It'll really <laughs> speak to some o, to OSR to the OSR people. Maybe, um, but in terms of of their goals of of using it as a way of getting new people in, as somebody yeah. who, as somebody who works with young people and have introduced twelve year olds to D and D before, mm-hmm. they don't want fewer simpler options. If they see that there are more complicated options, they will choose them, even to their own detriment, because they are teenagers and they they sometimes don't make decisions that are the best for them. But I I don't I don't I think it's a little strong to say that no one. I mean I, well, I right, yeah, yeah basic D and D is my favorite version. I mean I still if I could only pick one version of D and D to ever run again and only be able to run that, I would pick basic D and D. Okay. So I, I think it's you know. I think different strokes for different folks, right? Well, no, obviously, and I'm, and I'm fine with that. And, and honestly, I, I clearly I read through it and I'm like, well, okay, all of those things sound good. This isn't going to be the game, version I play, but that's fine. It doesn't have to be yeah. for it to be a good game. Uh, and it can still yeah. be compatible with my game and that'll be fine too. Um, I like that they talk about like we want this to be easy to learn in, in as much as uh, it should be as easy to learn this version of the game as sitting down and learning how to play Settlers of Catan. That said, yeah. that said, in the next section, he then says, I want to boil down the core rules to about 16 pages, not including class-specific stuff. <laughs> and I don't know. To me, right. 16 pages of rules sounds more complicated than learning Settlers of Catan. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 16 pages yeah, of, of rules is, is significant. Yeah. You know, he, he mentions um, they want to simplify combat by taking out extra, extraneous options. There are currently 14 options in the rules. The basic game only needs attack, cast spell, disengage, hide, hustle, search, and use an item. And I think you could get rid of about three of those if you want to go really basic. Mm-hmm. You don't need disengage yeah. and hide and hustle in a basic game. Right. Or even a search. You can All that stuff can just be you know, extrapolated as, as uh, stat, mod- uh, stat checks, right? 
which is where they're going with skills. There's no skills. It's all just, you know, a strength check or an intelligence check or whatever. Uh, so I think a lot of those options even could be simplified significantly if for a basic version of the game. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I also agree with you in terms of they're going to have to be careful how they market and package this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're right. If you if you give a, a kid, uh, so a preteen or a teenager, a choice here, you can play this basic game, or you can play this really much more complex and exciting one, you know, or just much more complex one. They're gonna immediately going to say, "Oh, I want to play that exciting complex yeah. one." They're or, not going to. Or I want to have that. I want to have that spell, or I want that extra dice, or why can't I get feats? Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I worry about when I read those articles is that I I, I hope they're not equating higher level with more complexity. That bothers me a little bit because mm. you can have complexity even at low level. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't necessarily, as my character is gaining experience, I don't necessarily want a bunch more complexity. I want some things that I can do, options, you know, maybe I want to build a castle, maybe I want to, you know, travel a plane, but I don't want... Just because I'm high level, I now have to do all these other things with my character, like add a bunch of new powers or mm-hmm. a bunch of this other crap. I don't want to do that. So, you know, that's – I hope we have the option to be able to drop out of those things if that's the case and continue to, like, level up in, you know, if you will, an ordinary fashion instead of having mm-hmm. to choose a, a um, you know, or feel underpowered if you don't choose a prestige class or something like that. Well, and I think because, that's, I think yeah. that's supposed to be okay. I think there's, I mean, there, I think that's part of the goal, or at least to say, may, may, I mean, maybe you'd be underpowered if you don't choose a prestige, prestige guys compared to somebody who did. Um, but if, but as a DM, to be, very easily be able to say, well, we're not going to use prestige class in this game, and, and that's right. okay too. Although, although my understanding, mm-hmm. I mean, we read it. I think a blog article a week, a month, last month, uh, or maybe it was just something I read. Um, Otherwise, but but I remember them talking about prestige classes trying to be more story elements than mechanical elements anyway, so it shouldn't be a big deal, um, power wise, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and sticking with the, this basic version, one of the things they do mention though is that this is how they want to like the, your your old AD and D players. This will be the version mm-hmm. of the game for them. Mm-hmm. Now, when they say AD and D. Which edition are they talking about? <laughs> that's that's really that's for, that's that's first. So here's here's how it goes. First edition, okay. yeah. Original D and D was the small white box from 1974, and basic D and D was there's three versions of it. But basically, when people say basic D and D, most people are talking about the one that was released starting in 1981, the Frank Mincer red box of rules that then had the five boxes. It had the uh, the cover on it with the red dragon and the guy fighting the red dragon. Yeah. Okay, and um, and that went all the way up through 1990, and then they made the rule cyclopedia 1991, and that was the end of the basic line. At the same time, the basic line was coming out. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was coming out in 1978. They released the Monster Manual, and then the but, play- but that's second edition. There's no? handbook and the DM's guide. Oh, no, came not yet. That. That's no, that's first edition. That was that was 1978. Because, because second edition, okay, so second edition, edition was the second basic, edition was listen, called listen, AD&D. The basic. A second edition was called AD&D. Yes, but listen, so okay. so at the same time that basic D&D was being created and and produced in from 1978 to 1990, there was also AD&D, which was first edition, which was they were parallel lines, they were separate products. There was some cross compatibility and some products even had sort of small conversion guides. Okay, but there were some relatively large differences or what some people would consider large differences. So there was AD&D, first edition, 
that's like that first edition cover that you saw on the other article. Yeah, yeah. And then there was Basic D&D, which was released at the same time. And then in 1991, when they released the Rule Cyclopedia, which was the last Basic D&D rules product produced, they also then released Second Edition AD&D, which is also uh, called AD&D, but most people refer to it as Second Edition. Sam, they actually released yeah. AD and Second Edition of AD&D in like 88. In 1990. Well, uh, no, I'm, it was earlier sure, than that. I was sure, still in I, Texas. I started playing in in '87, and I only played Second Edition. Yeah, I was going to say it was, it was the late '80s when it was released. Well, so. but either way, my point still stands that when Basic D and D was being produced. AD&D was being produced, and then 1st edition AD&D, they updated into 2nd edition AD&D shortly after that, then, so that was was the end of 87, early 88. They transferred the basic D&D line into the Rule Cyclopedia, and in the back of the Rule Cyclopedia, they actually had a conversion guide of how to convert your basic D&D characters into 2nd edition D&D. And then the basic D&D line ended... The basic D&D line ended, and they ended up going only to what they call AD&D, right? But the, the, second, the second edition player's handbook came out in 1989. Yes, I see. I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it now. Okay, so 1989, and then they released the Rule Cyclopedia in either 90 or 91, so it wasn't very far after. And then the basic line ended, but all the whole time that first edition was out, there was a basic D&D line. They were separate products, but they were parallel released. And then when second edition came out, they basically ended basic D&D, and then when 2E ended, then 3E came out, and then 3.5, and then 4. So that's the real stretch of it, okay? <laughs> and, so the, and, and, they were, and they were actually publishing basic uh, first edition D&D at the same time they were publishing second edition, it looks like. Yeah. Well, so when you say, well, there is no basic first edition. Well, okay, right. But the Rules right. Encyclopedia came out after second edition came out. Yes. Yes. Right, okay. That's true. And the Rules Encyclopedia was basically a conglomeration of the five box sets. The, the five box that, right. That started exactly. with the. It was, it was yeah. with the red box. Yeah, it was a rewrite. It was compiled and re and and sort of edited by Aaron Alston. Whereas Frank Mincer had written, you know, the first two boxes of that set, and Aaron Alston didn't write any of those boxes, but he wrote the Rules Encyclopedia. Now, the the one box set that people don't think about is that now they talk about original D and D being the three little pamphlets in the box or mm-hmm. whatever. That yeah. was actually consolidated into one booklet, or maybe a couple booklets, in a uh, what they called a D and D box set, mm-hmm. and that had a I think that's the blue box or the purple box. No, Can't no. So those are also basic. Well, those are basic D and D as well. So there's a there's an Eric Holmes box set so uh eric holmes is the one that was that's the one you're talking about it's the it's the it's the, the light the blue has the, the light blue yeah the light blue cover that was that came out before the red box that i'm talking about but that's yeah, still know, called basic D. none of none of which is the point of this article <laughs> <laughs> no that's true yeah this, this will be great for the, off on a this will be great for randall yeah. and sam's new podcast the D- history of D. but <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's uh, – and then the, the next um, article then talks about the standard version of D&D, uh, which is basically what they consider to be the, the third slash fourth edition approach. Third edition for character creation, fourth edition for DMs I think is, is the way they, they sort of described it with a little bit of 2E with kits. So I can see some of that. I, I feel like that's going to be sort of, as, as it's named, the standard set and the people scale up or down from there. Um, the, my only thought on that or one of my thoughts on that is that – between basic and standard, 
seems like a pretty big jump. I mean, basic seems really basic, and standard seems pretty darn complex. Mm-hmm. The only difference between standard and com- and their complicated, you know, advanced version is that the advanced version just adds a lot of the modular stuff. It's not really more complicated. It's just ways of making it different. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. So it seems like there's a there's a big gap, and and they do sort of address the fact that they would expect some people will will mix and match a little bit of basic with a little bit of of the standard, and and you know choose this thing from standard or basic, but then offer these options from the standard rules and and do some of that. Just like people, I mean, we did that with our second edition games when I first started playing. Right, we still took a, a few different ideas and options out of first edition and played with those too. Um, so I think you could do that. It's just it is going to be a little more complicated to start at that at that level. But they don't. Well, wait. Well, so so explain this to me. Um, are the, so is the basic product a completely different product from the standard rules, That's, or is it completely compatible and just less complex? Well, or they, is that the question you're actually asking? Well, okay. So the, the rules are supposed to be standardized. Like I can take my standard character and I can take my my basic character and play them in the same game. Um, with some caveats, right? I mean, the the mm-hmm. the standard character is going to have skills and feats and that kind of stuff, which are totally compatible. But it means that you're going to face this climbing challenge differently because you don't have a climbing skill, whereas the other person does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which a DM who's familiar with both should be able to adjudicate either way. Um, in terms of products, I mean, they've only sort of generally hinted at a basic product being a separate thing, but with the huge caveat of. We have no idea what products will look like, so don't start coming after us about the the format of the products. You know, so um, we have no idea. It sounds like <laughs> they're looking at possibly making them two different products, um, but who knows how it'll play out? You know, we yeah, don't know. That's true. Yeah, and that's actually one thing I should probably mention about the John Shindahedi article too is that he makes it very explicit that his thoughts on the, in these four articles in particular are not to be taken as in the exact direction they're going and that things have been decided because literally things have not been decided. They're right. all being explored right now. Yep. So and then the the fourth part is dealing with and then here's the the ad, quote advanced section, but really they compare it more to like an unearthed arcana section. It's not more complicated than the standard section. It's just ways of doing things differently. And they describe that there's three different ways of doing it. There's what they call dials. So you can turn this dial and it doesn't change the game at all. It just um, affects, you know, some of the, you know, you can turn the dial on how healing works. So now healing is, you know, maybe all the way down to where there is no magical healing. It doesn't change the fundamentals of the game. But as a DM, you know, here are some tools and some tips for prepping appropriately to make sure you don't just wipe the party. You know, um, then there's the the modular system that sits on top of the core. So maybe you want a a, um, a tactical combat system, or maybe you want a a um, you know, it's just a henchman or companions, and all these you know it's all these little things that you can stick on top of the game to add new options to it. Um, and then there's the um, replace part of the core system option, which is like instead of having armor work like armor class, have it work like damage reduction. You know, or variants to to magic and all that kind of stuff, and they're sort of working on the assumption that you will only ever do one of those at a time. Because if you start doing both, you know, damage reduction and hit location, um, that is a lot harder for them to design than if you just assume that you're going to do either one or the other. You know, um, but the other two you can pick and choose and, and mix and match as much as you want to create the feel and the setting for your game. Hmm. 
so my um, my actual concern with reading this this article in particular is I wonder if they are trying to make the game to end all games or the game to be all games and if that's if if it's going to be a little too difficult for them to accomplish in a in a smooth enough way to to make everyone happy cuz cuz honestly what it sounds like is they're trying to make everybody happy uh-huh and um in my experience, and I hope I'm totally wrong about this, but that usually doesn't work out very well. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's fair. And I think that, I mean, this is, they are trying to be as inclusive as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is the goal. Um, and that's why part of these modules work. And that's what they've said from the beginning is that we want to make a bunch of modular systems so you can make the, your version of D&D. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's fine as long as they provide a lot of tools and guidance for DMs to understand how to do it and the effects that that's going to have. And that it's not necessary to make – say, you know, sure, there's all these modules. But as a DM, you need to say these are the modules that are available, not, mm-hmm. not, you know, not like it's been a lot of editions where it's been like, well, it's published so I can use it. Right, you know, for yeah. a lot of and that was what yeah. people, a lot of DMs failed to do in the third edition. Right, is because there was a lot of extra material that was produced, and you really never had to play with that material. Yeah, but <laughs> and, and I really and that's where you get power yeah. creep. You know, your player yeah. would bring this thing to the game and say, "Well, I want to do this," and it's like, "Well, you don't really have a choice." Kind of at that point, otherwise your guy's not going to play. So yeah, it's like, okay, I'll allow it. I got to figure out how to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I really had a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, I, I think okay. a little, that happened in fourth edition as well. I mm-hmm. think, especially with some of the earlier uh, Dragon and Dungeon magazine stuff, where it was you know not not rigorously play tested to fit within the system, uh, right. and it wasn't. I think the expectations of people were that hey, this is in Dragon magazine, it's it's good to go, and. There was really no comment coming out of Wizards of the Coast about that for a long time, and then they sort of realized, okay, well, maybe this isn't the best idea. These were meant to be items that you might use for a particular expedition or whatever, and now suddenly they're being used by everyone in every situation, and right. it makes them overpowered. Yeah. Right. I thought that one of the most fun parts of this article, though, was the, the wish list. Sort of Mike Merles is, and here's you know fifteen or twenty specific modular <laughs> rule things that were that that are I'd kind of like to see happen. My, and my only mm-hmm. problem with it is I still don't see my option for high level play. It's not on the list, and I want to be able to do that. I want to make my superhero mm-hmm. characters that go up and fight against the gods. Darn it! So we'll see if that then, happens. Then play a supers well, game and modify it down. No, man. no. I want to play D and D. D and D has a long history of being able to do this. I've been playing that style of game since second edition. D and D has a long history of doing it. So you guys, your, it was your generation that broke D and D. Then heck yeah, okay, <laughs> and, and we'll break it again. Just and you make can't that stop perfectly us. clear for the viewing or listening public. That's yes. right. I will take credit for that. Okay, <laughs> but I do like a lot of the things that are in here. I like the idea of having mass combat rules again because we haven't had that really since Second Edition. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, Battle System came out, and um, mm-hmm. and they used it. And actually, I think even just prior to Battle System coming out, or at the same time, the Dragonlance series of modules introduced was really the first modules that introduced massive combat mm-hmm. within a module setting. Well, <laughs> and yeah. 
Which is ironic because that's where D and D started. Was a, 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 a combat. A well, yeah, combat I mean, it really got back kind of to its roots. I remember having that scene. There was this big giant dragon battle and huge battle in in Ancelon, and I can't even remember the details. But we had it all spread out over our, my friend's pool table, <laughs> and it was just it was a beautiful <laughs> sight, man. Yeah. It was just, it was just epic, and you know those kind of things are fun to set up and do every now and then. You know, not constantly, but. For the for a uh, climactic uh, battle, there those kind of rules are important. I think so. Right on. Good well, to have them. Remember that ten minutes we had to discuss these articles. Yeah, <laughs> it's we been a half hour. It's, it's been twenty. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think it's time to say goodbye. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> if you want to support the show, head over to thetomeshow.com. You'll see the show notes for the episode uh, as well as our other episodes. And you'll also see links to our uh, Amazon affiliate and our uh, D&D Classics affiliate. So if you can go do your shopping and uh, the show gets a bit of a kickback for that to help us pay our bills. So Every time you buy a classic D&D module, a grognard gets his wings. <laughs> <laughs> True facts. That, that's excellent. So... Uh, I have p- typical stuff that I usually say here at the end, and I don't remember it exactly, so let me make something up. Um, it's something about thanks to Randall and Sam. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember. And Randall, where can we find you on the internet? Right now, it's kind of hard to find me on the internet because I'm sort of between blogs, but um, you can certainly find me in- on Twitter, um, at DeadOrks. So... Um, well, Follow gonna, me and say hey. Sam's gonna make me have real show notes. <laughs> and then all, wow. and then and I know, shame on me. Uh, <laughs> and they can also find you on on another podcast, right? Oh, behind yeah. the DM screen, yes, of course. <laughs> another Tone Show yeah. production, yes. All right, well, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, <laughs> keep rolling dice. I guess that's good that's night. Bye bye. Call out right. Mm-hmm.